0: Welcome to episode number 13 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we hear from the two pilots who just set a new U.S. multi-seat record by flying from Minnesota to Tennessee in an Arcus-M. This flight wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision. It was literally years in the making. In the U.K., the British Gliding Association has noticed a disturbing trend in towplane upsets. We talked to the chair of the British Gliding Association's Safety Committee, to find out why and what's being done to stop it from happening. Parachutes. Believe it or not, sometimes glider pilots actually have to use them. We talked to longtime competition pilot Dave Nadler about leaving an out of control glider and living to talk about it. Pay attention to this interview, it could save your life. And on Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Lithuania, a small country on the Baltic with a group of passionate glider pilots. That and a whole lot more on this edition of the Thermal Podcast. In the early morning hours of May 8th of this year, Barry Yeager and Dick Andrews arrived at Faribault Municipal Airport, just south of Minneapolis, Minnesota. There, they DI'd Barry's Arcus M, Alpha X-Ray Charlie, for what they hoped would be an epic flight of a lifetime. A flight they had been dreaming and scheming about for a very long time. When all was said and done, they would set a new U.S. record for multi-place distance to goal flight. And they continued the flight by flying a total of 1,034.6 kilometers at an average speed of 132.6 kilometers per hour before landing at Covington, Tennessee, just northeast of Memphis, after a flight time of 7 hours and 48 minutes. I've reached Barry Yeager and Dick Andrews in Invergrove, Minnesota. So, guys, that's that's one hell of a flight you guys had uh, that you managed to complete. Congratulations! Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, now, Barry, Please. set this up for me. How long have you been planning this flight, and what kind of conditions were you looking for?
1: Well, this is this goes back. Um, Dick may will answer this, but. Uh, Really, there's been two groups that have thought about this: one in Faribault, one in Stanton, Minnesota. And it goes back at least ten years that there's been a plan to try to get a thousand K out of Minnesota. Uh, I think the the closest is probably um, six or seven hundred K so far mm-hmm. until this flight.
2: I uh, was looking at my records. Uh- from years ago, and it was 13 years ago, 2007, that we had our first team meeting to talk about a thousand kilometer flight. And we had a number of years where we met two or three times and had some attempts. Of course, none of them were successful, but we learned a lot along the way.
0: So what were the conditions that you were looking for uh, just earlier this month? What were the? What was it that set set it off for you?
1: Well, typically we would have thought that we were looking for a front to come through and we've always been planned that the front would come through and then we would start two or three days behind it and have the front fast enough that we would never catch it. Um, but what ended up happening here was there was a front that came through but the winds turned straight south. North Usually they come out of the northwest or, or they're out of the uh, northwest But in this case, we had southerly winds, and we had two fronts go in through one right after the other, and it just created this really good air, and it it created all the way down, cold air, all the way down to almost to Texas.
2: Yeah.
0: I looked at your OLC trace, and it was almost directly south of your flight, really.
2: We were traveling usually about 160 degrees, maybe 165 degrees um, most of the time, and the wind typically uh, will curve as as we go further south, it'll curve, so it's coming more from the west, pushing us to the east. But for whatever reason, uh, for this particular day, the wind direction virtually did not change at all from the time we took off to the time we landed. And that is very unusual. The uh, the very cold conditions in the morning, the temperature was like in the 30s, uh, made it possible for us to get a very early start. Typically, it's hard for us to stay airborne before 10:30 in the morning, and we took off uh, at 9:40 and uh, were on our way before 10 o'clock. So uh, that helped us set more time to cover the distance.
1: The other the other thing that helped us on this was when we were looking at uh prog charts and the weather it just it said we couldn't do the flight it kept saying no you can't the end of the flight would not work but then we started looking at the charts on an hourly basis and we could see that the front would go through right at the end of the day and allow maybe for some heating that we could finish the last 200k and it did just what we said and and we got through
0: what was the actual declared flight that you were trying to break a, a US multi seat record right
1: yeah we were we were going to go from um, Faribault, minnesota to bismarck missouri which was a uh, roughly a little over 750k and it was a declared flight to there mm-hmm.
2: The previous record was 458 miles, I believe, set about 10 years ago, and our distance was 474,
1: yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm.
2: Great. Now, how did you
0: guys decide to share the the workload? Barry, it's 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 your glider, so I imagine you're the pilot in command. What what kind of agreement do you guys have when you're flying?
1: We've um, we we share back and forth, um, Dick. There's a lot of instructing. Is pretty comfortable in the back seat. But still, I mean, we were just switching off, um, and we were just having really good discussions back and forth about, you know, which crowd, which route on clouds would we go, the blue hole would come up, which way do we want to go from here. Um, fortunately, our course line was, was pretty much on the wind line, and um, I don't think I've kept the course line that straight. on a 300k much less than a thousand k but uh it it helped a lot in in getting down faster too
0: now bring me bring me back to the morning of the flight you you launch you you shut down the engine what were the conditions like because it was still pretty early the sun was low
2: it was pretty early um We did not have any clouds right at Faribault Airport to be, when we took off. They they were there when we first, uh, like about 8.30 in the morning. Uh, But by the time we took off, there were no clouds right there, but a little further to the east, a little southeast. Um, So we found a little bit of lift uh, after shutting down the engine and decided we better get on the way because time was of the essence. And so we, we headed out on course um, and uh, we found virtually nothing for about the first seven miles and actually got a little lower than we'd like to before Barry managed to find us a fairly weak thermal, but enough that we could gain altitude and drift uh, along our course line. What, what's low, guys?
1: Uh, we were about 900 feet.
2: Yeah, that, <laughs> and, that'll.
0: And wait yeah.
1: a minute, I had my hand just about ready to start the engine and do a restart, and the. The real problem was it was so windy yeah. that we were drifting every circle. We were we were just drifting. I was amazed that the, the thermal held together all the way back up to about 4,000 feet. And in that climb, we drifted eight kilometers. So during the
0: flight itself, are there any uh, other than this uh, low save that you managed to pull off? Were there any other issues during the flight or was it just it sounds like almost the, the perfect day to do this.
1: The, you know, the flight, we were hoping there would be more cloud streeting and there would be more clouds and kind of bump and long. And it was really more of a glide and climb, glide and climb. Our our climb to glide ratio really wasn't that great. It was 70-30 or something like that. Um, and it, um, it, it went okay it went pretty well all the way along we kept we kept speed up i mean we were really fast through Iowa and into missouri and then um dick kind of handled um the finish into our i mean we were trading off back and forth all the way through this, and then we had a when we were going into our finish we got we had a few problems there.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, when we reached our goal at Bismarck, just south of St. Louis, um, we were we were losing altitude, losing altitude, and crossing the finish line for the record uh, of 474 miles. And by the time we did that, we we desperately needed to climb again, and it was rolling hills, not much landable terrain there. And uh, Barry, again, very expertly, calmly, and very quietly <laughs> got us back up to reasonable altitude. You and, know, Dick,
0: it sounds like it's uh, an excuse for you to hand over control at that point. <laughs> uh, you're right
1: on target with that. <laughs> it's, it's, your, it's your glider, Barry. Yeah. <laughs> well, when he when, as we were finishing, we had this beautiful cloud right at the, right at the finish point. And we were thinking, okay, we'll just, you know, when we're done, and Dick concentrated on to make sure we didn't miss the start, the finish line. So we came through, and he says, "Okay, you can take it over." And I started for the big cloud, thinking, "Oh, this will be great. We got this nice climb, and then we'll just take off from there."
3: Yeah.
1: And all of a sudden, Dick goes, "Turn left," and so I turn left, and and he says, "There's a." There's some airspace here. We don't have the notam for this. <laughs> we didn't want to lose. Yeah. We, we didn't want to lose the record with an airspace violation. Right, of course not. So we went. So we went around the airspace. We were right at the corner of it, and then I went back the other direction, thinking I could get it on the back side because it was at the point. There was a point, point. and when we came around to the back side, the cloud had not drifted through, and we just couldn't get it. And so the next clouds were like 10 miles away and we were pretty low. And so we just, we used some heating off of, off a old riverbed, And then later we found a kind of a hillside that I thought might generate some heat. And I got a small, some lift that got us up a couple thousand. And then we kept switching, just kept shifting over, shifting over to different thermals. And finally we got back up to six and we could go again.
0: Now, before we move on to the rest part of your flight, the rules yeah. have changed a little bit when it comes to these kind of records and the finish line. So there was the, the finish line is actually uh, perpendicular to your point, but it's only a, a kilometer or two, right? I, the, the, the rules one, have changed.
2: Yeah, one kilometer in total length. Right, so, so you've
0: got to make sure you nail that.
2: Uh-huh, yes. Yeah, so our flight computers help us do that, but it's still, it, it doesn't, look that big or feel that big when you're at you know at altitude and flying along at 75 knots
1: and we were yeah most of them were flying close to 100 you know 95 or 100 with that tailwind yeah
0: so you you knew you had that nailed you crossed the line in bismarck you've got the record in the bag and then you guys are going let's do a thousand k is that what you were thinking Absolutely,
2: <laughs> absolutely. We we uh, got to the finish line at three thirty in the afternoon, and so we figured we had probably at least a couple more hours of flying time, maybe even a little bit more. The wind was still good, and there were good, fairly good clouds in that area at that time for a while.
1: Yeah, in fact, we were. Our our original plan was to head. Um, to a airport, I think it was called Wynn, which was, uh, it was much more westerly because we, we were afraid the front had not gone through all the way. We didn't know if the front would have gone through and we thought we'd have to go westerly to, to get into good flyable area. But what we ended up doing is looking straight south and it looked fantastic. So we decided, well, let's just, let's just find a new airport Dick found a great one with a with that had a runway that was right directly into the wind, and and so that we headed off
0: towards there. Nice teamwork. Yeah,
2: well, that that's one of the things that we've been very blessed with This together we work well, and teamwork has been very evident in our flying. So
1: yeah, we we've, we've flown a few things together, and it it's it's been really nice flying with another pilot where you just don't question. Where they're going for a lift, what you know? It just—I don't feel myself leaning in the cockpit, trying to <laughs> trying right, right, to go right,
2: somewhere. Right. <laughs> of
1: course, he can't see me in the
0: backseat. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Barry, your your arcus, nice twenty-meter wings—is—is is this the ship of your dreams? It sounds like it.
1: It is. It really is fun, and the the, the fun part is being able to share with another pilot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I um, at you know, I've, I've thought about, oh, God, it'd be really nice to have one of the, the super single-seater ships, but I've had so much fun in, with different pilots from all over the world. that it's, it's really great, plus you still have the great performance.
0: Now, Bismarck is behind you. Covington, Tennessee is on the horizon. You, you've kind of got the feel for it. You've got Final Glide. How was that last
2: part of the flight? Well we there was a quite a bit of time before we got to final glide, and what happened is that we the lifts started to get weaker, and the clouds were thinner and further apart and, and uh we were the cloud bases were lower and lower, and we were thinking this is this is getting a little sketchy. we still had eighty miles to go, and things weren't working out so good, and it wasn't that late in the day and we looked down at the ground, and the sunlight was reflecting off the water, uh, standing water on all the fields, because the front that had gone through, of course, was a rain front. And when we finally did get to Covington, they told us that the airport, nobody could take off or land at the airport until two o'clock that afternoon because of fog and rain. So we, and we landed about 540, about three hours, Three hours and forty minutes after the fog and rain cleared, so uh, that, that was it. Was a little bit touch and go, but once we had final glide, Barry. Uh,
1: yeah, the 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 flight down there was um, it was it like he said it, it just kept getting lower and and weaker, and we you know I took a couple climbs at one or two knots when we had four all day, and. And I know Derek was getting frustrated in the back, and I'm just like, boy, this does not feel good. And, and, but the clouds look good, and they were kind of working up high. Um, I was just afraid we'd get too low with the winds that we had that we wouldn't be able to climb back out again. And I was just, so I, uh, we just kept climbing, trying to stay in that upper band. Um, But, it wasn't till we were in the middle of all these wet fields that we actually figured out what was happening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I said, to "Dick, what's that shiny thing?" And and he's we're looking down. And we're like, "Oh no, it's wet!" And as far as you could see in all directions, every field was just soaked. And Dick saved us on two huge climbs before we got to our final glide where he found stuff on dry areas. One one was kind of over some highway and one was near kind of a town where we had some rising land and uh, got enough heating off of it that we got up the final glide and then
2: hmm, yeah. um, that
1: felt great. <laughs> it
2: felt <laughs> tremendous. <laughs> we could hardly believe it. And we could start breathing again. <laughs> now, here's a question for you guys. This We're in yeah. the middle of this
0: COVID epidemic and it's far yeah. from over in North America. What kind of impact did this have on your flight planning
1: well we um, we tried to minimize everything i mean as far as ourselves our, our fortunately our wives agreed to be our our crew, which was just fantastic and and even coming home um, we kind of got a late start by the time we got the glider in the trailer i don't know it was maybe 11 o'clock or 12 it was 12 o'clock when we left covington yeah and so you know we were just afraid we wouldn't be able to find um hotels especially it was kind of rural and everything so Mm -hmm. we ended up we ended up driving home that night yeah just taking turns
2: Gary and i just took turns driving home wow must have been exhausted (laughs)
1: for <laughs> so yeah. about
2: two and a half days afterwards. Yeah. Well, we were pretty hyped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We so a lot of adrenaline.
0: Running. Let's back this up just for a sec. Put me on the tarmac in Covington. If, if I was, if I was watching you guys roll out, would I be seeing two tired pilots get out, or yeah. two extremely happy pilots with massive grins?
4: We, we
2: shocked.
1: <laughs> would be the. We, I mean, I remember opening the canopy and just go we just made 1,000K. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, yeah. it, it, we were so pumped. <laughs> yeah, but
2: when we, we physically climbed out of the glider, I think we were both a little stiff. It took us a while to kind of straighten up and stretch out our legs.
1: Oh, it, it was so cold. <laughs> Dick, Dick <laughs> on the way down, uh, on the way down, um, there was a point in the flight where Dick was in the backseat. I didn't know this was happening. And he's hearing this banging and banging, and, and, yeah. and he's thinking, the glider's coming apart. And, and Dick goes, well, oh, what is that? You know, and I go, it's my feet. I'm pounding on the ground. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was between 10 and 15 below centigrade, all right. the way down. And all yeah. oh, my feet got cold. Dick had nice warm booties on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, gentlemen, what's what's next for the two of you? Is there another record that you're coveting?
2: Yes. Yes, <laughs> you can tell. Uh, we uh, there's uh, another national record that we are coveting, and uh, that that's uh, a free triangle distance. We think that that's possible to to uh, get that one here of Minnesota, if somebody else doesn't get it first.
0: Wow. Well, fingers crossed. I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting with you
2: guys about that flight. Now, are you going to be trying that this year? Oh, if we, have, if we have the opportunity. You bet. Yeah. The Question is, which one of us is going to do it first? <laughs> <laughs> Either Barry and I will do it together. I, I own a DG one thousand with a couple other pilots. It's a twenty meter two seater, and so <laughs> so the competition make- is
1: we'll on meet yeah. this weekend if the weather's good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All in
1: good fun. <laughs>
0: Well, gentlemen, it's it's been a real pleasure speaking with you and learning about this remarkable flight. Uh, Thank you for chatting with me on the thermal and and safe flying.
2: Thank Thank you you. very much. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you.
0: Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Barry Yeager and Dick Andrews spoke to me from Invergrove, Minnesota. The duo set a new U.S. multi-seat record and flew a total distance of 1,034.6 kilometers from Minnesota to Tennessee. Take a look on the OLC to view Barry's trace of this remarkable flight. In the UK, the British Gliding Association has noticed a dramatic increase in tow plane upset incidents. This is where the glider on tow will pitch up and force the nose of the tow plane down. These potentially fatal incidents happen very, very quickly, and there's often very little time for the tow plane pilot to react. Tim Fregard is the chair of the British Gliding Association's Safety Committee. I've reached him at his home in Chilbolton, Hampshire. Hello, Tim, and uh, welcome back to The Thermal.
5: Hi, Harry. It's good to be back.
0: So you've identified a trend, or you and your colleagues at the BGA have identified a trend that comes to tow plane upsets. What have you identified?
5: Yes, one of the uh, the great resources we have in, in, in the BGA, as a, a lucky legacy really from uh, nearly 50 years ago, uh, is a vast archive of accident reports, uh, many of the details of which have been entered into a searchable database that we use uh, pretty much every day. And uh, that allows us to keep track of uh, statistical trends. And it also allows us to go back to the original um, accident reports to dig mm-hmm. out the details. And we we regularly look at uh, particular classes of accidents, whether it's aerotow uh, upsets or winch accidents or collisions or whatever it is. And uh, although it's, um, it's probably 40 years or 35 years since uh, we last managed to have a fatal uh, tug uh, accident from a tug upset, what we've seen is that um, of the nearly 80 um, upsets that we've we've got on our records. A third of them were in the past six years. And we actually had seven in just 2019 alone. Yeah, that's significant. Uh, now, that's, that's, that's significant. And, uh, I mean, we don't know whether... Uh, people are more are reporting these uh, more enthusiastically but it's it, it kind of looks worrying in the statistics so we dug into the details a bit more and um of course the same no fatalities in these but what we found was an awful lot that very easily could have been fatal very close shaves
2: mm-hmm.
5: so if you if i if i go through just the last um uh four or five years uh, of reports I, i've got a few quotations here from either the the tug pilot or um or the reporting uh, person that kind of put this in some real perspective. Um, there's one here where the uh, the tug pilot reports that uh, uh, he managed to pull out of the dive at about 60 knots after having an upset and recovering from it, estimated the ground clearance as less than 50 feet. There's another one where the tug pilot pulled out at a height that his tow rope clipped the trees. Um, and uh, another one where he was very pleased that he'd actually been flying out over a valley because that gave him the, uh, the ground clearance in there. So one of the,
0: I've got to say, of, as a tow plane pilot myself, that makes my hands sweat just thinking about it.
5: Absolutely, this is this is a really close shave in each of these cases, and it's I say it's not just not just one. I've got four four um, that I could quote immediately down here from just the last five years. Hmm. So we had to look through these a bit more, and we kind of concluded that there are two categories that the. Uh, tug upsets um, fall into. And perhaps I should say what the tug upset is um, first of all. Um, when you're on aerotow, you're flying in formation with the tug. In fact, it's probably even a bit worse than that because you've got the rope connecting you to the tug. Um, and if you get out of position, uh, you can start to exert a force through that rope on the tail of the tug. And if that force is big enough, you can overpower the elevator, perhaps even stall the uh, the, uh, the tailplane. Um, and cause the tug to suddenly uh dip its nose the glider it usually happens when the glider climbs above the tug um, but if that weren't bad enough, what then happens is that the uh the tug disappears below the glider because its nose is down. The glider quite often does a sort of winch launch behind the tug, so the whole thing diverges very very rapidly um it 's very disconcerting for the tug pilot even at altitude, it leaves the tug pilot looking uh looking at a face full of ground. So um, we've certainly got reports from tug pilots that have survived these things. Um, It's very, very disconcerting, and the recovery can be really quite difficult and demanding. Um, Sudden changes of attitude are disconcerting, but there are also physical forces going on there and uh you can end up looking at the uh looking at the at the aircraft from a, a different part of the cockpit if your straps are a bit loose you can find that it's difficult to raise your arm to find the uh release lever right right um,
0: now in so, this work that you've I, been doing have you been able to identify the cause what's what's going on in the glider that's led to this increase of, of upsets
5: well that's the crucial question um we've We've looked. We've kind of grouped the the accidents into uh, into two groups. Um, one of them is what happens, let's say, low down, um, below a few hundred feet, and certainly there are some cases when the the pilot really isn't a very good pilot and probably shouldn't have been flying um, that uh, that mm-hmm. But most of them are actually down to distraction, and we can identify in many many cases we can identify causes of distraction in the reports that that come through to us um it can be a loose object in the cockpit it can be trying to fiddle with instruments um it can be um, it could be a, a pilot trying must... to use their smartphone taking pictures on the toe haven't had that one i don't think um, or nobody and, would admit uh, it anyway nobody would admit it we've had problems with uh passengers uh trying to use cameras mm-hmm. um or trying to access cameras and there is actually a, a challenge there with uh, instructors or or first flight pilots trying to give a bit too much of a commentary to uh, to someone who's up there for their first flight and mm-hmm. maybe not concentrating on the on the tow enough. And the problem with these happening um, in the sort of hundreds of feet range is that. Once you've lost control of the of that aerotow and caused an upset, it really is down to pot luck then as to whether the tug this happens at the height from which the tug pilot can can recover. Hmm. There's um there's another category that happens rather higher up, still disconcerting for the tug pilot, but perhaps not so uh, so much of a physical threat. And those are very often associated with um, people not checking properly before turning after releasing the cable at the top of the tow. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Getting back to the the glider pilots then, I mean, that's where the, the problem seems to be. What is the BGA doing? Are you trying to hammer home with pilots, whether you're a seasoned pilot or a novice pilot, that you've got one job and that's to concentrate on flying until you're released and not fiddle with your flight computer or whatever's going on?
5: That's very much it. Um, it's reminding the, uh, the, the glider pilot that the tug pilot's life is in their hands and that they should be concentrating completely upon... Um, the aeroto and remaining in position. Mm. And actually, this is this is a little bit of a change of position for us in some ways, because in the past, we've probably had slightly mixed messages out there about it being a good thing to keep some sort of lookout while you're um, flying the glider on aeroto as well. And this uh, recent analysis has prompted us to um, focus the message a little bit and say, actually, and certainly until you're up at a, a reasonable altitude, um, what you should be doing is concentrating a hundred percent on maintaining station behind the tug mm-hmm. uh, letting the tug pilot do the lookout
0: now tugs you've got a bunch of you know pawnees that type of standard uh, tow plane around the world but you're also using lighter tow aircraft is that does that have anything to do with this
5: yeah that's a very another very interesting question because of course a lot of these uh lighter aircraft um are much more economical they, they're that's both because they're, uh, um, I suppose, a, a smaller construction, uh, and also a more recent design. In some some cases, helps too, and a different uh, maintenance regime can also bring down the costs for it. So some of these uh, micro light tugs are becoming really popular. Um, so we we've done our best to look at the uh, the rates for for this, partly prompted by the fact that this this um, recent uh, turn up in the num in the number of uh, tug upsets that we'd had. And um, I should say, first of all, the numbers are pretty rough because we don't know exactly what the the rate at which the tug is used uh, or how that compares between the different classes. But um, based upon what we do know, and, and with, as I say, a reasonable margin of uh, uncertainty in there, it does look as though the, uh, the lightweight tugs are rather more susceptible to tug upsets. And that makes a lot of sense because the aerodynamic forces that they can generate are rather lighter. Right. So it should be easier to overpower them.
0: I'm a tow plane pilot. Uh, what suggestions do you have for me to maintain my safety?
5: Ah, I wish I knew. Um, I think uh, an awareness of the tow, tow plane pilot as to what the risks are, um, making sure that you can um, release the the, the, the the tow very promptly if you need to, and and being um, very aware of what is happening behind you those are things for the air but there's a lot you can do beforehand as well because what we've certainly found over the years and other people have found over the years um, is that there are combinations that while not necessarily um, predicting tow plane upsets will will make them more likely so if you have someone who's inexperienced or rusty flying the uh, the aerotow in the glider um, if they're flying, if they don't have an aerotow hook, if a nose hook, if they only have a, a belly hook, that makes the uh, the glider much less stable. Right, on the toe. right, dancing around the um, CG hook. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Um, turbulence, of course, doesn't help. And there are a number of factors like that that can be checked out beforehand.
0: Well, Tim, this is a very good food for thought. Uh, hopefully, well, my gliding season will start at some point here in Canada. I hope yours does as well in the UK. Um, but good uh, safety food for thought. Thank you very much for spending the time and chatting with me about uh, this trend in towplane upsets.
5: My pleasure, and I hope you uh, hope you keep cl- well clear of the uh, the upsets yourself as a tow pilot.
0: Thanks. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Tim Fregard is the chair of the British Gliding Association's safety committee. He spoke to me from Chilbolton, Hampshire. now a word from our sponsor, SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number 7. For listeners of the Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying, or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the gliding club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters, and you'll get a 14-day free trial. That's USE, the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a
2: 14-day free trial.
0: On June twenty first, 2018, Dave Nadler and Spence Tathavan had to bill out of Dave's Arcus M near Nephi, Utah. What happened? More importantly, what safety lessons can we learn from this accident and its aftermath? Dave has flown over 4,500 hours in sailplanes, mostly competition and cross-country. In soaring circles, he is best known as the designer of the popular ILEC SN10 flight computer and for his work in helping create Power farm and bringing the Flarm to North America. I've reached Dave in Acton, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. So Dave, we're chatting with you to get a first-hand perspective on leaving a glider when you don't want to. Set the scene for us on that flight. What was happening, and what led to you having to leave this glider in the first place?
4: The very short uh, story is, we were sitting happily in a thermal with absolutely nothing going on, and uh, something happened where the with the back of the aircraft. Where the uh, the, the first thing I noticed was, um, or the really the only thing I noticed was the uh, one of the rudder pedals. The bottom rudder pedal kicked back and threw my foot off the off the pedal, hmm. um, so I, uh, because there were no other indications of any problem, and we'd been just sitting stably in this thermal for many, many minutes, uh, I assumed it was the backseater and started hollering at poor Spence, um, uh, who of course had nothing to do with this, and uh, the glider went out of control fairly quickly. It just dis- just degenerated into a spiral dive with uh, really no control response, so um, we, uh, we had to bail out uh, fairly fairly promptly. Uh, we were incredibly lucky in that we were extremely high when this happened. We were just approaching seventeen thousand feet, so discussing uh, rolling out of the thermal and where we were going to go next. Um, so we had enough time, uh, which uh, that was barely enough. In my case, the I got the chute opened about uh, one, well, less than one second before I would hit the ground, and only had a small. And that's of from seventeen thousand feet. I, yeah. Well. First thing we should talk, talk about is uh, getting knocked out during a bailout. Um, so one of the most important things uh, people should think about is the bailout procedure for their aircraft. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so a lot of aircraft, for example, um, are, are pretty hazardous during the bailout. So if you have an older Champ Hearth glider uh, without these uh, breakaway hinges on the on the right side, if you have an old glider that has a Headrest that's integrated with the canopy like an older um, DG. um, These things are very, very, very hazardous. If you do jettison the canopy, um, they have a very good chance of knocking you out. Um, So uh, in GDL's bailout, that was an old DG with the headrest integrated into the canopy frame, and it did knock him out.
0: Right. I just read Um, about that in the latest edition of Sailplane and Gliding.
4: Right. And um, if you have an older Shemp earth canopy and you, d- you jettison both sides, which is no longer the, it's in the original manual, but is no longer the suggested bailout procedure. If you do that and there's any kind of side load aerodynamically, the canopy just comes sideways and hits you in the head. So um, if you're very lucky, like my friend um, Roy Kundiff uh, a number of years ago, all it does is break your jaw and doesn't knock you out. But if you're unlucky, it knocks you out and then you may not, never get out. So first and foremost, if you do have an older glider with a headrest integrated into the canopy, for God's sakes, uh, get that updated. Uh, if you have an older Shemp hearth, uh make sure you understand what I'm talking about with the bailout procedure. And uh, if you ever had to bailout, don't push both uh, push the, push the right uh, canopy release knob; uh, just swing it open from to the, to the side. Hmm. Um, and then of course you got to practice on the ground exiting the glider. Uh, you really need to practice this, and you need to make sure you don't, for example, make a habit of unstrapping the parachute before you get out of the glider. We right. really need to good procedural practice for all of us. Exactly right. So don't do that. Um, but I, I've certainly seen people do that, and uh, that's that's difficult. So, but look, sir, uh, just for,
0: interrupt for a second. Let's get back for a second to the seconds after you realize something was wrong, and. Did time stand still, or did you come to the conclusion pretty quickly that you had to leave the glider? Talk to me about that time frame of after you had that rudder pedal uh, kick back at you.
4: Uh, well, first, first I uh, pushed as hard as I could to try and get the rudder back to center, and um, it was as I was hollering at poor Spence, uh, it became immediately obvious that he had nothing to do with it, and that thing wasn't moving. Um, and then I just went through the drill of, you know, center the stick. Does that, does that uh, recover the thing? And no. Uh, and interestingly, the rudder, the pedals were jammed opposite the turn. So I had top, you know, full topside side rudder, uh, but the stick just didn't seem to really do anything. Um, the centering the stick first and then putting the stick full uh, towards the top of the turn. Um, it didn't, it didn't roll out. It just continued uh, degenerating into a spiral dive. So it didn't take uh, very many seconds uh, before it was absolutely clear we had to bail out. Huh, that's interesting. The airspeed um, built up, uh, as did the G load, quite quite quickly. Mm-hmm.
0: And so. W- can you remember, w- were you getting in an adrenaline rush? Were you panicking? Or what was your state of mind as you were making des- these decisions?
4: Oh, no, I don't know. I'm sure I was getting some adrenaline, uh, absolutely no panic, uh, much more. I think what, what, uh, what is common in these situations is just disbelief. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what the hell this is, this can't possibly be happening. This makes no sense. This is, you know, this is crazy. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, really no, uh, and you know, it wasn't a, a very long time. Really there was no time to get, uh, I was busy, you know, I was trying to sort it out and, uh, as quickly as I could, uh, realize, um, uh, And then, you know, very quickly realized that that wasn't, uh, it was not a sortable uh, situation and, uh, um, you know, yelled bailout and uh, jettisoned the canopy. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, you you need to be, uh, again, uh, as as I mentioned earlier, you need to really understand the and be practiced. uh, What's the bailout procedure for your particular aircraft and, and uh, practice getting out of it as quick as you can. And you had done that with this Argus? Um, Practice. Yeah, absolutely. And um, also, Being a two-seater, I always, uh, for for however many decades it's been now, I've always briefed people on how to use the parachute and the bailout procedure. And boy, you know, you kind of go through the motions and think, "Well, this is a little bit silly, but we got to do it." Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, uh, in this case, um, the Argus uh, is a little different from some gliders, and it has uh, grab handles in the back cockpit that you need uh, to help yourself uh, help get out, so your canopy doesn't, your your uh, parachute doesn't uh, snag on the on the back of the glider, as you're getting pushed back from the airloads, uh, and just to help you get out of the very, very deep cockpit, mm-hmm. uh, you need to use the grab handle. so you know I'd gone over that stuff with uh, with Spence and fortunately, Spence had already had parachute training uh, ground school uh, in the in the Air Force. so
0: were you in uh, the back or
4: the front? I was in front okay
0: so then you said that was seventeen, thousand feet where this thing started to go wrong. But you're pure, yeah. you only opened to shoot seconds from impact. You you managed to pull this off.
4: What you were unconscious in that in between period? Yeah, I apparently bounced off part of the airplane uh, coming out. I really don't remember the the exit from the uh, from the from the glider. The last thing I remember is uh, struggling a little bit to turn the rotary Schroth uh, seatbelt release, mm-hmm. and that was a little bit of a struggle. I, I remember having trouble getting my hand on the on the thing and turning it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, after that, nothing. So I have no idea how I got out or what happened. Um, uh, the physical damage I got, uh, the bang on the head, I-, I had a really good bang on the head and, uh, you know, black and blue and, uh, a bunch of broken ribs. And, um, uh, that was probably from bouncing off the plane though. It, the broken ribs may have been from the, uh, shock load from the parachute opening.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, and the,
4: the cracked vertebrae from his hitting hitting the rocks uh, on landing, but um, so the uh, the your, your co-pilot he did he open up his chute pretty quickly after bailing out? he got out uh, he got out cleaner and quicker mm-hmm. and opened his shoot at altitude, which ended up landing him in a different ravine than where I came down. And he's uh, watching he, you go past without an open chute. Uh, well, he couldn't see anything cause he lost his glasses and he was facing the other way anyway, I think.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So, um, uh, he didn't, uh, he didn't see what happened. He thought he saw a flash of the chute opening, uh, but he would have only seen a flash because he was again in a different, going into a different ravine. And, uh, I got my chute open very, very, very close to the ground and then went below the, the top of the ridge. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't entirely sure what he saw and his vision without his glasses isn't that good. So he had some had some difficulty with uh, dealing with, uh, you know, you, you you bail out, you're going to you're not your glasses are not going right. to stay on. Right. So now, was it pure luck that you woke up in time to pull the cord? Absolutely. I mean, I woke up and I'm looking at the uh, my hands and feet above me and the terrific noise as you descend at, you know, whatever it is. It's uh over 150 miles an hour in that configuration,
3: mm-hmm.
4: uh, maybe closer to 200 true airspeed. So, um, yeah, I saw that, and I just, uh, as I as I woke up uh, thinking, that doesn't look right, I just pulled, you know, grabbed and pulled as fast as I could. Wow.
0: Now, you've done something most of us have only thought about and luckily haven't actually done. What did you learn from this process? What would you do differently if it happened again?
4: Uh, I, I always wore, wore a, used a tracker and I thought I had was doing a good job. I had the tracker in a pouch on the, on the um, uh, below the, well below the shoulder on the um, front of the, front of the harness.
0: A spot tracker. Uh, so
4: it was in a, in a special pouch that that's made for the parachute it, or one you'd made yourself. This was a Garmin inReach in a shoot in a pouch that, uh, that was made for, uh, a, it was a special uh, shoot pouch. Okay. okay. Uh, fortunately, the closure on that thing was not very secure. And in, after I impacted, um, I reached into the, I reached for the, uh, the the tracker to push the SOS button and was horrified to find it was no longer there. Right. So um, it's really important that you have a tracker in a really good pouch that's not going to get where where it's not going to get knocked out because um, let me tell you that was an extraordinarily discouraging moment when I put my hand over to grab my in reach and it wasn't there.
0: So I know Silver Parachutes out in California, I think it's California. He makes a specific pouch for this kind of thing. Is that the kind of thing you would
4: recommend? Yeah, um, you can get a pouch made by your your local rigor. These things aren't very complicated. But what you don't want is some you know flimsy thing with Velcro or, or one snap or something like that, which is just not going to survive. You know, right. um, the forces that we, we you know you go through in in some kind of event like this are very very high, and especially if you hit the Part of the aircraft. Um, another thing I've seen a lot of people do is they take a spot or something and they clip it on their shoulder, and that that's absolutely uh, a disastrous thing to do because if you do bail out, uh, in the best case it's just going to fall off, and in the worst case it's going to interfere with the risers on on where on the side you clipped it, right? Yeah. Because the risers have come out of that area and swing. It goes forward. off automatically. Boom! It's gone. And so, um, like I said, if you're lucky, it just flies off and disappears. And if you're unlucky, it interferes with the risers. So, um, don't do that. And if you see anybody doing that, just clipping the tracker on, on the shoulder or in the upper part of the, um, uh, shoot, um, you know, please speak to them and get them to stop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you need to have a proper pouch. Uh, well, I'm, I have a
0: spot tracker and I've, I usually just clip it on onto my uh, harness in the same way you described, but I'm going to be getting one of those pouches, uh, Absolutely.
4: Yeah, there's no way that that uh, that works in, in an accident like this. Um, the other thing is that, uh, you know, the, getting knocked out coming out of one of these things is not that uncommon. So uh, it happened to G. Dale, although in his case, again, it was unfortunately because he still had that uh, headrest uh, integrated with the canopy in that old uh, DG he was flying. Um, but it happens. Um, and uh, because of that, I would, I would strongly recommend a static line. I've gone and had a static line installed on the chute that I have here for the, my other glider. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Interesting.
4: Yeah. And the static line is, uh, you, you know, you're not, if you get out of the glider, it has a very, very high probability of deploying, uh, deploying the thing, uh, promptly.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and if you don't use a static line, uh, you know, getting your hand on that handle and pushing it, robustly away from you to get the chute open everybody says pull pull the d-ring it's not pull it's actually push it away from you right right uh, it's not so easy and it, it it's uh, a lot of people have missed you know they've grabbed for the thing and not be you know not been able to find it especially if you've lost your glasses um a static line is uh, really a, a good idea now
0: is that standard uh, so- operating procedure for you now in your glider do you have a static line
4: I've, I've got the static line uh, fastened uh, on, uh, um, installed on the chute now to, to fasten to the the, uh, the glider. I mean, all our gliders have the orange ring, usually right next to your left shoulder. Yeah, that's there for a reason. Um, so we should uh, we should use it. Mm-hmm. So static line and proper proper pouches for your tracker, for glasses, for anything else that you're gonna need. Um, uh, as you said, Alan Silver has a, a couple of kits. I think he calls them a um, smack pack or something. I think I'm going to get one of those. Right. I'm going to add another pouch at some point for a, a spare set of glasses. Um, you know, you can't put everything on there because you can end up having 10 pounds of junk strapped to the front of you and not be able to put your harness on. But uh, it's um, uh, you got you got to think about at least having the minimum stuff there and, and properly secured. Now and you, you mentioned rip- that your
0: co-pilot had had some training for parachuting. Have you jumped before this?
4: No, so this is my first and hopefully last jump <laughs> yeah. um, i would I would strongly say uh, you know you, you for heaven 's sakes, get ground instruction on how how one uses a shoot um, your local um, your local jump zone has probably courses on a regular basis if yeah. you 're in a club, you can probably organize for one of the instructors to come and, and give give training. Uh, it's, it's better if you do it at their facility. Um, when I did this training some years ago, there was a platform. So you had to jump off the platform and, and show that you could land correctly and fall correctly so you weren't going to hurt yourself. Um, and that's, uh, that's all uh, important stuff. Right. Uh, one thing that's important uh, to note, a lot of times the instruction includes uh, stabilizing your fall. And that's absolutely out of the question in an emergency situation you, you really need to get the chute open right now. And you don't, you, you really, uh, your chances of successfully stabilizing your fall if you haven't practiced this some number of times after an emergency are like zero. Mm -hmm. So forget about that. But the rest of the instruction is really, really important. Um, how to use the chute, uh, when you, when you go to get your chute packed, um, practice pushing the D ring, uh, to deploy the chute, um, your rigger will be happy to stand in back of you and catch yeah. the parachute while you, you know, grab it with one hand, grab it with the second hand and push it away to open the chute. So you've you've practiced it and you have that, uh, you know, that muscle memory of exactly what you have to do to get the get the thing deployed.
0: You know, so really, I, from what you've been telling me, I used to make documentary television films and I did a show once called Escaping Death and talking to people from all walks of life, whether it was an airplane crash or a car crash or a fire, all sorts of things. But the... the the main takeaway from all of that was the people who had a plan ahead of time who always thought, what if, what goes wrong? What am I going to do? That was the, the difference between life and death for a lot of people. And that's what you're talking about as well.
4: Well, it's, it's really important. You have to know how to use the chute. You have to know how to get out of the plane. You have to not get knocked out. Though in my case, I did get knocked out, but, uh, not at least by, uh, (laughs) using the wrong procedure. Um, so uh, you know this stuff is important, and we again, I you know I've given the briefing to. I can't imagine how many people I've taken for rides over the decades, yeah. and always always felt you know this is a little bit over the top having to do this discussion about using a parachute. But uh,
0: well, I'm in the same boat. I've done that many times, but these conversations are really important for us to realize that we're not just doing it for a lip flap. It's
4: uh, you've got to realize that you might be using it. It's it's uh, it's serious business, and uh, you know mid airs are not that common these days, especially after the widespread adoption of FLARM, but they still happen occasionally. Um, you know, GDL had that midair. Um there are certainly a handful that happen yeah. every decade. Um and yeah, people get knocked out trying to trying to trying to bail out. So get the static line um and then uh get all go, get all the rest of the training because even if you have the static line for deployment, you still have to land the thing. Right. And the right. the uh the ground instruction will, will cover uh, cover uh, how to how to manage it.
0: Dave before I let you go uh it used to be that military pilots and who had to eject or bail out they used to get a uh a little silk caterpillar is that something that uh that you now have?
4: Oh yeah Spence and I got the caterpillar pin it's really it's really kind of it was depressing it's a little small <laughs> but uh, yeah we, <laughs> we have we've received our our caterpillar pins and uh it took two tries, but I got uh, I got the riggers who packed the two shoots, uh, uh, very nice bottles of their choosing. The uh, first shipment was stolen by the UPS uh, staff, and then UPS refused to re- refund the money because they said I was illegally shipping alcohol. But so I, I tried again with FedEx, and that time it got there. But uh, so we we uh, we did all the requisite rituals. We uh, we we. Uh, rewarded the riggers with, the uh, with nice bottles and we got our, uh, we got our, uh, caterpillar pins. Yeah.
0: Well, I hope that's the only caterpillar, uh, wings you ever get. So, uh, stay safe that's and all. thank you very much for explaining this to us. And, uh, I think whoever listens to this is going to be better prepared in case it ever happens to them. So thank you.
4: Okay. Well, I, I hope, um, I hope it's educational and I hope people uh, take it to heart and spend the time to make sure they understand the bailout procedures and, and get their, uh, shoot set up with, uh, proper pouches in the static line and get the ground training
1: right
0: dave thank you take care thanks very much bye-bye dave nadler spoke to me from acton massachusetts <music> this month on gliding club confidential we go to lithuania a few episodes back, you may have heard glider pilot Rokas Laugutas describe a homemade mini wind turbine that kept his trailer's batteries charged during the long overcast winters in Lithuania. Well, Rokas is back to tell us about his gliding club. Hello, Rokas, and thank you for coming on to the, the thermal podcast and talking to me about your your gliding club, which is like Bachone, right? Is that a,
3: the correct pronunciation?
0: It is Bacone. Ah, okay, Bacone.
3: Yeah, uh, I think it is difficult to pronounce.
0: I think it is a little bit difficult to pronounce, but it sounds like a great gliding club. So, where exactly are you located?
3: Uh, Poczoni is located in the center of Lithuania. And we usually uh, flying in the south part of Lithuania. And also, we um, it's a common uh, task to fly to Poland also. Mm-hmm. and uh, to the west part of Lithuania.
0: Rokas, d- describe the local geography to me.
3: Um, Lithuania is a real flatland, and also we have some uh, big areas of forests. So mostly thermal
0: conditions then? Uh, yes. And are you able to do decent cross-country flights of a couple hundred kilometers? How, how far can you go from your location?
3: Uh, we have uh, a record in Lithuania, and it is uh, more than one thousand uh, kilometers. It um, it was maybe ten years ago, and it was about uh, one thousand and fifteen kilometers.
0: Yeah, obviously good conditions. Once. <laughs> yeah, that's great.
3: However, uh, usual tests is about um, three to four hundred kilometers. Okay. And
0: and cloud base on a good summer day,
3: uh, from um, two to three uh, kilometers. Nice,
0: that sounds good. So d- describe the actual airfield to me and the and the runways. What's the uh, the field like?
3: Uh, we have a really huge airfield in Potsuni and uh, where is one asphalt uh, runway, and. Um, a very big uh, area of uh, grass and uh, we are able always to take off in front of uh, the wind
0: so is it just a gliding club or do you have power aircraft there as well uh
3: most mostly it is a gliding club uh, but also we have a a parachute club uh, in uh, the next corner
0: Okay, okay. And and how big is your club? How many members do you have?
3: I think we have about 100 uh, members in our club.
0: That's a decent-sized club. And and what about your fleet? What are the training aircraft that you use?
3: Uh, our club uh, just bought uh, a second Mariana. If you know, it's a great uh, glider for students, and it, they were made in France.
0: Okay. I haven't actually come across that glider, but I will Google it later and see what it looks like.
3: Yeah, it is a really nice glider. I have uh, had uh, two flights this year, and I was really uh, amazed.
0: So what do you guys do at your club? Do you winch or aerotow, or both?
3: Uh, We have both. Uh, uh, The second we use uh, only for students and uh, Eroto's uh, we use commonly.
0: Okay, and and what are your tow planes?
3: Uh, we have uh, with old-fashioned uh, Vilgas.
0: Ah, those are nice airplanes. Yes, <laughs> I've seen them here in Canada once in a while.
3: Yeah, uh, we have enough of them, so we are using still. Right, right.
0: So, w- what are the annual fees? Is it expensive to fly at your club, or is it uh, the the price reasonable?
3: Uh, I think we have a really reasonable price, and um, mm, we have to pay maybe about two or three hundred euros uh, in the beginning of a season.
0: Okay. And your arrow toes, what do they cost?
3: I think it is uh, lower than 20 euros.
0: Well, that's not bad at all. (laughs) Rokas, finally, my last question, what's the best thing about your gliding club?
3: Uh, Firstly, I really enjoy that uh, I have grown up here uh, from the um, times when I was a small kid. And the second thing is that is a really um, strong gliding club with uh, a huge history and a lot of organized uh, world and European championships. Nice,
0: Rokus. Thank you very much for telling me about your club, and uh, thank you again. Take care. Thank you, Rokus Lagudas, spoke to me from Kaunas, Lithuania. To find out more about the club, go to wwwp That's pociuna il <music> That's it for episode number 13 of The Thermal. I will be back again early July with another show that will include an update on COVID-19 and its impact on gliding. Thanks for all the positive feedback. Please leave reviews with your podcast provider and spread the word. My goal is to have 2,000 downloads per month. Not a huge feat when you consider the number of glider pilots out there. Please spread the word and explain to the old guys at your club what a podcast is. Finally, if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the thermal podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the thermal podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the thermal podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.